Welcome to the Gunplot podcast from RTE's Documentary on One. This is the second of four extra episodes. This recording we're about to play for you is from the afternoon of October the 16th, 1970. Charles Hawhey's barrister is making his opening submission to the jury. He's Peter Maguire. The historian, Dr. Michael Heaney, sets this up for us. Peter Maguire was Hawhey's second counsel. He had two seniors, one Neil McCarthy and the second one Peter Maguire, both senior counsel. And this was Peter Maguire's version before the jury of the case that Charles Hawhey would be making in evidence. He covers all the main points that Hawhey would be relying on and it presented the jury with an introduction to Hawhey's case for his innocence. Please, Your Lordship, gentlemen, the jury, before Mr. Hawhey goes into the witness box to give evidence in this case, call it to me to address you as shortly as I can on his behalf. And I want to emphasize, gentlemen, at the outset that I do not intend, in the course of what I'm going to say to you at this stage, to deal in detail with the case which has been presented here by the prosecution as against Mr. Hawhey and the other accused. Nor do I intend, gentlemen, to deal in detail with the evidence which Mr. Hawhey will give you when he goes into the witness box. But there are, gentlemen, certain matters which I would like to refer both in regard to the case for the prosecution and in regard to the evidence to be given by Mr. Hawhey on his behalf. <coughs> gentlemen, Mr. McKenna, in opening this case on behalf of the prosecution on last Tuesday week, told you that conspiracy meant an agreement. And that in this case, it meant an agreement between the accused, persons unknown, to unlawfully import arms into this country. He went on to tell you, gentlemen, that that will be proved by the prosecution on the facts which would emerge from the evidence and the inferences which you could draw from those facts. And he further added, gentlemen, that he would not be able to prove the origin or to distinguish between the accused as to the originator of this conspiracy. He could not do that, gentlemen, I respectfully submit to you, because you cannot prove the origin nor the origination of something that has never been. And I submit to you, gentlemen, on behalf of Mr. Hawhey, that nothing about which you have heard during the course of this trial was done or said in pursuance of any conspiracy on the part of either Mr. Hawhey or any of the other accused. To prove, gentlemen, trips to the continent, to prove trips to the docks, and to prove trips to the airport in connection with arms and ammunition, and to prove arrangements being made for customs clearance through official channels in respect of arms and ammunition, is not to prove a conspiracy to import arms illegally into the country. And if, gentlemen, any of you were to proceed on that basis in this case, you would, I suggest, gentlemen, be well down the road to doing a grave injustice. 
But gentlemen, I want to turn at this stage to the manner in which the case for the prosecution has been conducted. I think it is right to say, gentlemen, that in a criminal case, it is the duty of the prosecution to place before a jury all of the relevant evidence and to put it all fully and fairly before you in the interest of justice. But I suggest to you, gentlemen, that that has not been done in this case by the prosecution. And I think, gentlemen, that you are entitled to ask yourselves why. I say, gentlemen, that it has not been done in this case. Firstly, insofar as not putting it, the evidence fully before you. I would like to refer to the fact that the prosecution, gentlemen, did not call in evidence as part of their case Colonel Heffernan, the man who had a distinguished career in the army, who had, as you heard him say in the course of his evidence, served as four, for four years as aide-de-camp to the late President Chantio Kelly, and who had been, for the best part of eight years, Director of Army Intelligence, and who retired on retirement age in April of this year. You gentlemen, having heard his evidence, and having heard his evidence not gentlemen because the prosecution called him, but heard him gentlemen because his lordship called him, you have heard from him detailed, vital, and relevant evidence relating to the matters the subject of this prosecution. And I think, gentlemen, as I said to you before, that you can reasonably ask yourselves, why did the prosecution decide not to call Colonel Heffern? I don't think it's exaggeration to say, gentlemen, that no one could say that the facts relating to this case and relevant to this case would have been fully and fairly put before you if you had not had the evidence of Colonel Heffern. <clears throat> Maybe, gentlemen, Mr. Walsh, who I assume will close this case on behalf of the prosecution, will give some explanation. But I don't know what it is, and I'd be very interested to hear if such an explanation is given. But, gentlemen, it does occur to me that one of the reasons why Colonel Heffernan was not called on behalf of the prosecution was that some of his evidence would be in sharp conflict with the evidence of the star witness of the prosecution, Mr. Gibbons, the then Minister for Defence. In conflict, gentlemen, with the evidence given by <coughs> Mr. Gibbons in regard to a number of matters. In conflict, gentlemen, in regard, first of all, to the knowledge which Mr. Gibbons had of all that Mr. Captain Kelly was doing during the period that you've heard described in the course of the evidence. In conflict, gentlemen, as to, Captain, as to Mr. Gibbons' knowledge of plans or proposals as to the place where the arms and the ammunition were to be stored. In conflict with Mr. Gibbons, gentlemen, on the reasons for the calling off of the training course at Dunree. In conflict, gentlemen, 
with Mr. Gibbons on the request to have Captain Kelly relieved of regimental duties in order to enable him to go to Germany in connection with the proposed importation of arms and ammunition. Because of these conflicts, gentlemen, it just didn't suit the prosecution to call Colonel Heffern. <coughs> and I ask you, gentlemen, do you think that that is a fair or a proper way for the prosecution to present a criminal case of this kind in these courts? Also, gentlemen, in regard to Mr. Hawley, it was of considerable importance on one particular aspect of the case to which I'll return to a later stage. As regards, gentlemen, the question of fairly presenting the case, I might refer to one matter. You may recall, gentlemen, that at a certain stage, I think it was on last Friday, this day last week, the prosecution, at about 20 to 1, called for Mr. Morn, the ex-Minister for Justice, as a witness. But he wasn't in court, and you heard later that he wasn't in court because of misunderstanding by him as to when he would be called. The prosecution, gentlemen, refused to go on with their case at that stage. And Mr. McKenna, on behalf of the prosecution, indicated to you that he took responsibility for the decision that in the conduct of the prosecution case that he deemed it necessary to call Mr. O'Moron as the next witness. And that meant, gentlemen, that Mr. O'Moron was not going to be called before Mr. Gibbons nor before the astonishing Mr. Berry. <coughs> You may recall, gentlemen, that insofar as Mr. O'Moran was concerned, his evidence, insofar as the prosecution were concerned, was of a purely formal, technical nature. I think I'm correct in saying that Mr. O'Moran was asked about seven questions by the prosecution, and they related solely, gentlemen, solely to the question of his having or not having issued authority or licenses to any of the accused or the Wellops company to import arms or ammunition during his period as Minister of Justice. Why then, gentlemen, did the prosecution take such a firm stand that they would not call Mr. O'Moran before Mr. Williams and before Mr. Berry? It seems to me, gentlemen, and again, there may be some other explanation for it, but is, I'm sure we'll hear from Mr. Walsh in closing the case, that he was not called, they did not proceed with the other witnesses because it didn't suit them to have Mr. O'Moran called and <coughs> anticipating that he would be cross-examined by the defendants on matters such as the activities of the protective branch in intelligence work in the north and government contingency plans. As I say, gentlemen, there may be some other explanation for it, there may be some other reason for it, but I, gentlemen, offhand, cannot see it. <clears throat> now, gentlemen, if I might turn now, at this stage, 
to the things that I would ask you to bear in mind when you are listening to Mr. Hawhey giving his evidence and when you come at the end of this case to consider the case against him and his defense to it. And there are a number of matters which it appears to me that's absolutely vital that you must bear in mind. First of all, gentlemen, you must bear in mind that he was, as you know, at the relevant time, the Minister for Finance and a senior member of the Cabinet. He was, as Captain Kelly mentioned in the course of his evidence, I think it was yesterday afternoon, one member of a committee which had been set up by the Cabinet in August or September of 1969 <coughs> for the express purpose of receiving information about affairs and events and happenings in the North. And he was a member of that committee, gentlemen, along with Mr. Blaney, Mr. Faulkner and Mr. Brennan. Furthermore, gentlemen, you will bear in mind that he knew of the contingency plans. And furthermore, as has been mentioned by Mr. O'Moral in the course of his cross-examination, he was aware that he and the Minister for Defence had been directed to work together in order to deal with these contingency plans, and that Mr. Hawley was also directed to make available to Mr. Gibbons as Minister for Defence whatever the army might require in connection with these contingency plans. <coughs> now, gentlemen, I want to go back a bit in time to the way in which Mr. McKenna, in opening this case on behalf of the prosecution, state of the case as against Mr. Hoy. He said, gentlemen, in the course of his opening, that the evidence would establish that up to the month of March of 1970, that there had been frequent, and indeed, he was sure, entirely lawful, normal meetings, as between Mr. Hoy and Captain Kelly. But that to come to the critical period, which he had described earlier as being March, that the evidence would establish that through Mr. Fagan, who was then Mr. Hoy's personal secretary, the Captain Kelly had called on Mr. Fagan, Mr. Hoy's secretary, intending to call on Mr. Hoy and to seek custom clearance in respect to the consignment which was to come in on the 25th of March of this year. And at a later stage, gentlemen, having dealt with what he said was the case as against Captain James Kelly and Mr. John Kelly, he went on to say that Mr. Hawhey's involvement, while of a lesser degree, because he was only there briefly, was of a vital nature, because it was he who had given directions to Mr. Fagan that this consignment was to be cleared without customs examination. He went on to say that it might be that from the evidence of a whole that you would draw the inference that Mr. Hawley, in directing Mr. Fagan to secure custom clearance for this consignment, was acting innocently and did not know what the consignment was. But he, on behalf of the prosecution, suggested to you that he did know. 
Uh, gentlemen, I'll be coming back to that particular incident at a later stage, but I think it's as well that I should mention at this stage. As a result of Colonel Heffernan having been called by his lordship, and not, as I said earlier, by the prosecution, you now know that the idea for Captain Kelly to go to Mr. Hoy, or to go to the Department of Finance, was not as a result of any prior arrangement Mr. Hoy and Captain Kelly, but that it came from Colonel Heffernan, then Director of Army Intelligence. Because he has told you in the course of his cross-examination that Captain Kelly had mentioned about going directly to customs officials to get customs clearance. And the Colonel Heffernan, in his own efforts, said that he told Mr. Captain Kelly that if this was coming in as an official government consignment, that he should go to the appropriate minister, either the Minister for Defence or the Minister for Finance, in order to arrange for customs clearance. And that gentleman is how Captain Kelly came to go to the Department of Finance in order to seek customs clearance. That gentleman seems to me to be a matter of vital importance, and vital because, as I pointed out to you, prosecuting counsel in opening the case seemed to relate the suggested guilt and involvement of Mr. Hawking in this alleged conspiracy to that direction. And you now know, gentlemen, that the reason why it was sought from the Department of Finance was because Colonel Heffern, the Director of Intelligence, had suggested to Captain Kelly that it was coming in as an official consignment that that was the way in which it should be done. <clears throat> now, gentlemen, with, with, in further regard to that particular aspect of the case, Mr. Fagan, who was, as you know, Mr. Hawkey's private secretary and information officer at the relevant time, described to you Captain Kelly's call to the department. At this particular time, Mr. Hawkey was at the government meeting. According to Mr. Fagan, Captain Kelly told him what he wanted and gave him some particulars about the consignment when it was coming in. Before Mr. Fagan ever saw Mr. Hoy on that 19th of March, Mr. Fagan, of his own initiative, phoned Mr. Culligan of the Revenue Commissioners at Dublin Castle to ascertain whether or not the Minister of Finance did in fact have the power to direct the customs to allow in a consignment in this way. So that when Mr. Hawhey came from the government meeting, Mr. Fagan had already dealt with this matter as an official inquiry through official channels by phoning Mr. Culligan of the Revenue Commissioners. Mr. Fagan has said, and I think the way he put it actually was, I think in mentioning this to Mr. Hawhey, I told him that Captain Kelly had said that he knew all about it. But leave that for the moment, that he told Mr. Hawhey that Captain Kelly had inquired about customs clearance for consignment of goods. And Mr. Fagan then told Mr. Hawhey that he'd been on to Mr. Culligan, and that Mr. Culligan said that he had the power to do it. 
And Mr. Hawkey then said to Mr. Fagan, that's all right, go ahead. Isn't it clear, gentlemen, that, that at that stage, insofar as Mr. Fagan and Mr. Hawkey were concerned, was being dealt with by both of them as an official approach from a man who was out of army intelligence, Captain Kelly. And it was on that basis that Mr. Hawhey gave the instructions to Mr. Fagan that it was all right to go ahead. And remember this gentleman, that in regard to that particular matter, Mr. Fagan then went back to Mr. Culligan, and it went all the way through official normal channels, from Mr. Fagan to Mr. Culligan, and finishing up with Mr. O'Reardon down at the Customs and Excise Office at Alexander Keith. There was nothing hidden about it, there was nothing sinister about it, there was nothing round about it. It was done in a normal, routine, official way. Now, as I mentioned, gentlemen, in describing what Mr. Fagan had said was his rec recollection of the way in which he met with Mr. Hoy. He said he thought he told the <coughs> minister that Captain Kelly had said what the consignment was. Mr. Hoy's recollection is, gentlemen, that he did not say that to him. And the fact, insofar as Mr. Hawkey is concerned, is that he did not know when he was giving that particular direction, on that particular day, what the consignment was. But, gentlemen, even if he had known, gentlemen, what the consignment was, he would still have given the direction in the same way as he gave it, because insofar as he was concerned, it was an army intelligence request and he was giving them the facilities which he as minister was entitled to do and was doing it officially. <coughs> now gentlemen, in the course of his evidence, Mr. Fagan dealt with another matter to which I wish to refer. And that is, the events of the weekend of the 18th of April. And you recall, gentlemen, in this regard, that Mr. Fagan had phoned Mr. Hawley and eventually got in touch with them on the Saturday evening at about six o'clock. That subsequently he phoned back Mr. Fagan and told him that he had had a conversation with Mr. Berry. And that whatever it was should be called, was to be called off. And Mr. Fagan has told you that he then had another conversation with Mr. Hawley on the Monday morning, in the course of which it is suggested that Mr. Hawley said that he had had a further discussion with Mr. Gibbons. I had had a discussion with Mr. Gibbons, and that it was to be called off and to phone Captain Kelly in the end. It would be Mr. Hawley's evidence, gentlemen, that he had no such conversation with Mr. Fagan on the Monday morning. And furthermore, gentlemen, that he couldn't have had such a conversation on the Monday morning because he didn't see Mr. Gibbons, the Minister for Defence, until the Monday evening at about half past four. And you will have evidence, gentlemen, which I think will quite satisfy you of this, that it was on the Monday evening at about half past four that Mr. Hawley, for the first time, after he'd heard about the, the consignment of the Bolton Community Airport on the 19th, that he saw Mr. Gibbons. 
so that he couldn't have said to Mr. Fagan on the morning, Monday morning about having discussed it with Mr. Gibbons and to phone Captain Kelly in Vienna. <coughs> now, gentlemen, before I pass from the evidence of Mr. Fagan, there was another matter which he detailed as evidence and which I think is very relevant and I think it's something that you should bear carefully in mind and consider the case as far as Mr. Hawkey is concerned. You will recall that Mr. Fagan described meeting Mr. Hawley on, I think, the 29th of May at Merriam's Square. It was an accidental meeting. Mr. Fagan was going to his car and Mr. Hawley was getting in or out of his car. And they had a short conversation in the course of which Mr. Hawley said to Mr. Fagan that he was looking worried. Mr. Fagan said, why shouldn't I? And Mr. Hawley then said to Mr. Fagan, according to Mr. Fagan, you have nothing to worry, worry about. Anything you did, you did on directions. And all you have to do is to tell all you know. That gentleman was coming from Mr. Hoy to Mr. Fagan, who was the person with whom he was most closely associated in his department over the relevant time. It was coming, gentlemen, after Mr. Hoy had retired as a minister. It was coming after it was known that the Taoiseach had sent the papers to the Attorney General. Do you think, gentlemen, that that is a likely observation or remark to be made by someone who had anything to hide or who had been involved in a criminal conspiracy of this kind? I suggest to you, gentlemen, it is not. <coughs> the gentleman, if I might pass from Mr. Fagan to the person I described at an earlier stage as being the stage witness for the prosecution, and that's Mr. Gibbons. And it seems to me, gentlemen, that there are really two Mr. Gibbons. <coughs> There's the Mr. Gibbons up to the time that this case was started, and the Mr. Gibbons since the case did start. And I say that for this reason, gentlemen, that I think it is hard to find anywhere, and I mean anywhere, in the evidence of Mr. Gibbons, anything convincing in his actions and his deeds consistent with what he now says was his view of what was happening at the time. And why do I say that? I say it, gentlemen, for a number of reasons. And I'll take what I think is the most obvious example of this as a first one. Mr. Gibbons, in his direct evidence, and again in cross-examination, has agreed and admitted that Captain Kelly came to him at the end of March or the beginning of April and that he told him, Mr. Gibbons, of his, Captain Kelly's, involvement in the expected arrival of a consignment of arms and ammunition at the Dublin docks on the 25th of March, and that the guns and ammunition hadn't arrived. Mr. Gibbons then quotes himself as having said to Mr. Captain Kelly, I suppose that's the end of that lot. 
To which, according to Mr. Gibbons, Captain Kelly replied, no. And there was mention of hoping to get it out through, I think, an Adriatic port. And then Mr. Gibbons mentioned Trieste. And since so far as Mr. Gibbons is concerned, nothing more material or of any importance was said as between the two of them on that occasion. <coughs> but gentlemen of the jury, if Mr. Gibbons' attitude to what was happening was as he now declares it to have been, surely to heavens, he would there and then have said, Captain Kelly, you cannot go on with this. It must stop. Not just that you can't do this as an army officer, but that you cannot do it at all. But he doesn't do it. He lets him go out of his office. No reprimand, no rebuke, no warning. Does he do anything at that stage, gentlemen, to have Captain Kelly, as you would expect if his evidence is now correct, have him shifted out of army intelligence there and then? Not only had Captain Kelly, according to Mr. Gibbons, told him that he had been involved in this particular effort, but that it was going to go on, and that they hoped to get it in in another way. I suggest to you, gentlemen, that the failure of Mr. Gibbons at that stage and on that occasion, at that meeting, to behave as I have suggested one would be expected him to behave if his evidence is consistent, shows that he was approving and authorizing what was happening and that he knew all about it. He's told you, gentlemen, that he spoke to Mr. Hoy. He's told you that he expressed an urgent desire to have Captain Kelly removed from Army Intelligence. And Mr. Hoy's evidence won't agree with that gentleman, that insofar as Mr. Gibbons was concerned, there was no great urgency about it, and that the only reason being given by Mr. Gibbons at that time was this, that British intelligence were on tour, and that that was the reason that Mr. Gibbons thought he should be moved out of army intelligence. And after that, let us look, gentlemen, at two other aspects of Mr. Gibbons' evidence in order to test whether or not it is likely or probable that what he now tells you is his view of this proposed importation of arms and ammunition was as he says it was. He has told you that he himself, of his own initiative, as Minister for Defence, arranged for the army to mount this training course at Dunree. He has told you that the plan was and put into operation that they would bring in people from the bog side, enroll them into the FCA, and train them at Dunree, presumably in the use of arms. That was Mr. Gibbon's plan. But gentlemen, if it wasn't in his contemplation that arms might have to be distributed in the north, in certain circumstances, by a government, as a result of a government decision. What was the point in setting up this training course at Dunree by the army for the people from Derry? Was it for fun? Remember what was involved in this, gentlemen. The Irish army trained citizens from Derry and being inducted into the FCA for that purpose. It was a big step, gentlemen, taken by Mr. Gibbons, Minister for Defence, 
and I suggest to you one which is wholly consistent with the operation that you have heard described here about the importation of arms. Turn to another matter, dedicated by Mr. Gibbons. The transfer, gentlemen, of the 500 rifles and the appropriate ammunition to Dundalk. He has told you that this happened as he was going down to his home in Nace, or in Kilkenny. And that on the 2nd of April, as he drove through Nace, that he was stopped by the guards. And as a result of the message was given by the guards, that he then decided to go into the field of all headquarters in Nace and to make a telephone call to Mr. Blaine. And that as a result of what Mr. Blaine told them about what was happening in Daddy Murphy, that he, Mr. Gibbons, again of his own initiative, got through to the chief of staff, I think it was, and directed that these arms and this ammunition be moved to Dundalk. Five hundred. And how does Mr. Gibbons explain this to you, gentlemen? He explains it to you because he says that he was afraid if he didn't do it, that Mr. Blaney might do something worse. <coughs> gentlemen, does that stand up to any serious examination? Can you imagine a minister in an Irish cabinet phoning the chief of staff and telling him in an urgent manner to send 500 rifles and appropriate ammunition and apparently also 3,000 gas masks to Dundalk because he thought that one of his fellow colleagues in the cabinet might do something worse. Can you accept that as a gentlemen? I suggest to you, gentlemen, that again, the Minister of Defence, Mr. Gibbons, was doing this because this was what is his mind, this was what is his intention if there was a deterioration in the north. What were the 500 rifles going to do in Dundalk? Isn't it as clear, gentlemen, as noonday that if the situation in Ballymurphy and anywhere else in the north was to deteriorate at that stage, that these arms, as a result of a government decision, would be distributed? and will be used by the army. Isn't that correct? Is there any other way of looking at it? He then says, gentlemen, that he, that he had these recalled within a matter of days, within a day or two. But he didn't, gentlemen, because we know, I think, from the evidence of Colonel Delaney, that 150 of the rifles, and one assumes, I think one can assume, the appropriate ammunition, was left behind at Dundalk for a further month, until the 1st of May. Gentlemen, I suggest to you that those two actions on the part of Mr. Gibbons, and there were others that I'm not going to go through at this stage, were consistent with what is said here was his attitude to the proposed importation of the arms and ammunition from the continent. <clears throat> so, gentlemen, I think at this stage I might turn to the evidence of what I think I referred to at an earlier stage of the astonishing Mr. Berry. Gentlemen, I say astonishing for this reason. Because I think this is an astonishing thing and a terrible thing. That a man who has come up through the civil service to become Secretary of the Department of Justice 
should give us evidence in the way that he gave it here in this court in connection with this case. You will recall, gentlemen, that Mr. Berry was cross-examined, particularly by Mr. Sarahan on behalf of John Kelly, about the operations of Army Intelligence, uh, the operation rather of the Special Branch in the North of Ireland. <coughs> and yesterday, gentlemen, you heard the evidence of Commissioner Lincoln of the Garda Corner. And I'm going to read his evidence to you first, or note of what I think is, is a correct note of what he said in the course of his evidence. And Mr. McKenna put to him that he wanted to deal as shortly and as accurately as he could with certain instructions that he got from Mr. Moron in August or September of last year. It was, Mr. Lincoln said, Commissioner Lincoln said, on the 8th of August 1969, in the absence of the commissioners called to the minister's office. I, and this now is the commissioner, I got instructions to send experienced and mature men into the six counties, making on-the-spot uh, inspection and armed investigations and to report back objectively on the position then obtained. What was to be the purpose of those observations? Was it espionage or general observation? General observation, the general feeling. Was it as far as possible to include all sections of Northern Ireland opinion? Exactly. And specifically, were the officers sent, if possible, to have a northern background and connections? Preferably. Was there any question of special branch officers? Did those officers go up and report back to the minister? Yes, they did. And then, gentlemen, the cross-examination by Mr. McCarthy. Mr. Lincoln, the special branch is one section of the Garda Shia Corner. That's right. It has no particular different statutory function under the Garda Shia Corner Act. Is that right? Not to my knowledge. It's just set up as an interdepartmental control, and that's right. And then went on, gentlemen. When the instructions in this regard were given, they were given to you personally. They were, sir. In the absence of, Mr. of, of Mr. Commissioner, was Mr. Berry present? He was, yes. He had given you these instructions, and to the reports that came from these officers, go to Mr. Berry. They did, yes for transmission to the minister and eventually to the government? Yes. How many reports were sent? And then <coughs> there was some further examination which I don't think I need to go into. Now, gentlemen, in the course of his cross-examination of Mr. Berry, Mr. Sarahan put a number of questions to him with regard to the operations of the special branch in the six counties and suggesting that it had been decided that because uh, of the lack of information coming through the special branch to send officers into the north. And in the course of the cross-examination by Mr. Sarah, Mr. Berry, on, I think, three occasions, said to, the, to this effect that he denied categorically that special branch officers were sent to the north in 1969. He repeated that, gentlemen, a number of times. He was then put to him, his special branch officers went up there, you know nothing about it. I know that no special branch officers went to the north. Now, gentlemen, as you know, any witness that goes to the box in a criminal case takes a note to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Do you think, gentlemen, that Mr. Berry, in flatly rejecting the suggestion 
that any special branch officers went to the north in 1969 was being completely truthful. Wouldn't you expect him in his position and realizing, I suggest to you gentlemen, as he must have realized, that what Mr. Sarahan was after in these questions was to find out if anybody under the Department of Justice or associated with the guard of Shia Corner had gone into the north to do intelligence work. Because Mr. Sarahan had asked him the questions with regard to a confused situation between the two branches, Army Intelligence and the Detective Branch. But Mr. Berry didn't see fit, gentlemen, in answer to the several questions of Mr. Sarahan to volunteer that and say, no, no special branch officers, but Garda officers did go, <coughs> did get information, did present reports, gave them to me, and I gave them to the minister, and they were presented to the government. Gentlemen, I mention that because I have to suggest to you that when you come to consider the evidence which Mr. Berry has given with regard to the telephone conversation which he had with Mr. Hawley on the, uh, the evening of the 18th of April, I suggest to you, gentlemen, that you should unhesitatingly accept the account of that conversation as will be given to you <coughs> by Mr. Hawley, and that you should cast aside the account of it as given by Mr. Berry and treat it with the contempt that it deserves. Mr. Hawley will tell you, gentlemen, that at no stage during that conversation did he ask Mr. Berry would these goods be allowed through if a guarantee was given that they would go to the north? That he did not ask that question to Mr. Berry. And furthermore, gentlemen, that Mr. Berry did say, or did say that it was the most stupidly handled affair that he had ever heard of in his career. And Mr. Hawley will tell you, gentlemen, that what he said in finishing off that conversation with Mr. Berry was, well, it had better be called off whatever it is. Because insofar as Mr. Hawley was concerned, he didn't know anything about what was expected to arrive at Dublin Airport on the Sunday until he got the phone call from Mr. Fagan on that evening. In regard, gentlemen, to the fact that Mr. Hawley saw fit to phone Mr. Berry, may I mention again something which I mentioned in dealing with Mr. Fagan and what Mr. Hawley said to him in that meeting on the 29th of May. Do you think, gentlemen, for one moment, that if Mr. Hawley had a guilty conscience, that if Mr. Hawley had been involved in a criminal conspiracy to import arms illegally into this country, that he would phone up Mr. Berry, the Secretary of the Department of Justice, to talk to him in this way? Isn't it, gentlemen, the last thing that he would have thought of doing? But as soon as Mr. Fagan had phoned him about it, his immediate reaction was to go to the person who, once the detective branch were out of the airport, would know about it, Mr. Berry, and had a conversation which he will tell you about, but which did not include, gentlemen, and I emphasize this, did not include any request or inquiry from Mr. Berry as to whether or not the goods would be allowed through if a guarantee were given that they would go directly to the north. Gentlemen, I don't intend to go into any further details in connection with this case. As you've been indicated to you already by Mr. McCarthy, Mr. Hawley is going to give evidence on his behalf, on his own behalf. Now, <clears throat> I think, gentlemen, that you may well say to yourselves, looking back on the evidence which you have heard during the course of the case, why a case 
by a prosecution. I suggest to you, gentlemen, that there never was any case to be made against Mr. Hawley or against these accused. I say, gentlemen, that there should never have been a prosecution because there wasn't the evidence to justify such a prosecution, prosecution, gentlemen. And I say to you, gentlemen, that you can do your duty in this case in only one way, and that is by returning a verdict of not guilty. Mr. Foreman, gentlemen, we shall now adjourn until 11 o'clock on Monday morning. Barrister Peter Maguire addressing the jury in advance of Charles Hawhey taking the stand. The next recording is from four days later, October 20th, and a most unusual insight into the workings of a courtroom. Because this tape is of a discussion which took place between the judge and counsel in the absence of the jury. That's the next extra episode in the Gunplot podcast. <laughs>